But we are in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how hard you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath with his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. Those two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. And Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for this chance to be in this house uh, with your people, Lord, that we may fellowship with one another and we may worship you together, Lord. We may raise our voices together. We may connect our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would be the center focus of this service, that you would be the center focus of everything that occurs in this building today. And Lord, that you would raise us up, that you would build us up, you would encourage us, Lord, that you would challenge us by hearing of your word, by speaking with our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray for our Sunday school teachers and I pray for um, our nursery volunteers. I pray for everybody who is involved with uh, running this church uh, this morning, helping those uh, to get where they need to be. Lord, I just ask that you would bless each and every one of their hearts. Lord, steer them where you would need them. <laughs> bless everything that comes from our mouths today, Lord, that we may honor and glorify you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come to that portion of the book of Hebrews, whereby a little bit of light is shining through a storm. We are entering a season of refreshment. The winter sleep is being replaced with the renewal of life. A season we call spring, warmer days. 
April showers are going to bring May flowers. Trees will bud, flowers will pierce through the crust of the earth. And all of this activity warms our senses with refreshment as well as increasing our, if you will, allergies. Our, our passage this morning, though, is a time of refreshment. We've just come through, if you will, a scathing warning. The writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, has set down for us in the first eight verses of this chapter a warning. And it's about growing or not growing in your faith. Wanting to remain dull. And the warning is this. You can't just remain dull. If you desire not to grow, then you will recede. And the punishment, as you, we saw last week, deals with the fact of loss of rewards. But now that the storm, the warning is over, our passage this morning is, reminds me of the sunshine that comes after a massive thunderstorm and lightning. I, I'm really thankful that God gives us lightning storms at night. They sort of highlight, they sort of illuminate all of that around us. And then you count one, two, three, boom. Yes, Lord, what are you saying? That's his voice. Uh, you question that. Well, go to the book of Job in the end, and you will find out that God speaks through thunder. And the psalmist writes, the voice of our Lord covers all the earth. The storm is done. Now a beam of light comes through. I'm amazed at times when at night you see those sunbeams come through the clouds. And I just ask myself, is today the day that Jesus is coming? Is he setting up the, if you will, the, the stadium of his glory? That as it talks about as we get to Hebrews chapter 12, being surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses. I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. But now the sunbeams are coming. And you kind of wonder that maybe, just maybe, the readers of this letter that was written to them may have been thinking, am I going to fall? Am, am I going to regress? And yet now... The writer of Hebrews in verse 9 settles all of that when he says, my dearly beloved. He changes the tone from them and they to now you, the blessed ones. And he commends them for a faith that may have faltered a little bit, but has not been lost. This morning, this is a passage that deals with doubt. It deals with fear. And how can we overcome those two issues? 
Did you catch in verse 9 where the, the writer of Hebrews says, even though we're speaking this way, dearly beloved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better. We're confident of things that are better, things that pertain to salvation, if you will. So this morning, we're going to journey through this particular passage and be acquainted and encouraged by three individuals that are mentioned here. But before we get there, let me share with you some wonderful things that has happened. I seem to be losing my voice, and I don't know why. That's a blessing for you, because I could say, let's close in prayer. Hopefully my tea with honey will soothe the raging beast. Anyway, the author of Hebrews, if you remember when we were in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way over to chapter 6, verse 3, has one main theme. It's this, grow up. Grow up. Remember, the nation of these particular individuals, these first century Hebrew Christians, are considering going back. Back to where it was more comfortable. Back to where they were accepted by society. Back to where Jesus no longer was their forefront. It would be the law. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. Grow up. And so now we, we follow this reverberating blast, if you will, of a grim consequence for those who fail to thrive and instead fall backwards. We looked at that last week. Now the tide is turning. And we need to contemplate exactly what is being said. If you notice in verse 10, the basis for the author's confidence in his reader's spiritual growth, if you look with me, you will find three things that the author of Hebrews encourages his people with. The first one is this. They were already involved in serving other people. Secondly, they were already revealed their hearts, their sensitive to God's working and, and had shown works motivated by love. In fact, even in the midst of their current hardships, they were still ministering to the saints. And yes, they may have slowed down a bit, but they faced these obstacles with perseverance. They faced obstacles of persecution. They faced obstacles of being downgraded, of being punished, and yet they continued on. Not as vibrant it would mean, but they continued on in ministering to the saints. And when you go to Matthew chapter 6, Verses 2 through 6, you find out that God doesn't forget your service. 
He rewards that. And so by fanning these glowing embers of faith and love, the struggling Hebrew Christians once again reignite the blaze, if you will, the passion for spiritual growth. The writer of Hebrews gives them three motivations for exhortation. Number one, the first one is this. In verse 11, he wanted them to show the same diligence to the end. Keep going. Keep going. I don't know, maybe you've heard it. I've, I don't know how many times I've heard it. But I realize that the presence of the Holy Spirit, the perikletos, the one who comes alongside, he will whisper in our ears, keep going, keep going, keep going. I remember hearing twin brothers at Lancaster Bible College. One played the organ and the other played the piano. They put a concert on. And one of the brothers told the story of when he was a child, just learning how to play. He got on stage and he was playing simply, Mary had a little lamb. Unbeknown to him, there was a concert master who came up behind him and began to embellish what he was playing. And he said, this concert master, all he kept saying was, keep going, keep going. That's perseverance. That's what the author of Hebrews wanted these wonderful Christians to know that to show the same diligence, don't stop, don't quit, keep ministering, keep serving, keep honoring, keep going. And then again, the second one is this, in verse 12. He wanted them to not be sluggish in their spiritual progress. Notice what it says in verse 12 so that you won't become lazy. Remember that word? It's the same word. You may have dull in your translation. It means the same thing. Literally, he is warning them. It's the same word that he used in chapter 5 and verse 11. Don't become dull. It's a warning. And he wanted them this brief detour through this warning section in, in Hebrews chapter 6, the author now brings his, his audience back to his original thought, which is captured for us earlier in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, to enter into rest. Enter into rest. The third one. We find that in chapter 12 also, or verse 12 also, where it says, be imitators of those who have inherited the promises of salvation. Imitate them. My father, or my stepdad, I should say, who was my father, he was a master carpenter, sort of like Tim is. is you know, when you want something done, call Tim. He'll put you on the list. Six months, he'll be there, but you just call him. He's that busy. He's good. He's good at what he does. 
And, and I remember working with my dad. God wasn't calling me to be a carpenter. I've hit too many of my fingers. I, I'm not good at it. But I wanted to imitate him for the purpose of his steadfastness. Even in days of when work wasn't scheduled, he continued on. He knew God was going to provide. And that helped us through Bible college and through seminary. And then when he did work, he always gave praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Until the day I smashed my thumb so bad as we were putting a faceplate on the end of rafters that he took me down off the ladder and he got a drill. And he drilled a little tiny hole in my... I said, what, what are you doing, Dad? You're going to like it. No, I'm not liking it. But it relieved the pressure of blood behind my nail and the pain stopped. Still tender. Now, Tim, you've never hit your fingers like that, have you? Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> In the midst of these exhortations, the author of Hebrews begins to whisper, press on to maturity. Be diligent in the growth of faith until the end, until the end. But he doesn't just say that. He gives them an illustration. And in verse 13, the author of Hebrews goes to his, if you will, his main man, Abraham. When you go back to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, you're introduced to him. Because God speaks to him and he promises him something. He promises him a son. Now, Abraham was 75 years old when that promise came. His wife, Sarah, was 65 years old when that promise came. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. It wasn't until Isaac was born 25 years later. When he was born, Abraham was 100 years old. And Sarah was 90. Baby, if you come to me and say we're having a child, Good Lord, have mercy, bury me in the backyard. <laughs> 90 and 100 years old. Now think of that. Physically, that is, can't happen. It's nil. It's not going to happen. But God had a promise to make. Then God took Abraham and Isaac to another final test. It was on a hill, on a mountain, where God said to Abraham, take your only son, 
the son whom you love, and offer him to me. Well, you know the account. That which they waited 25 years now, most likely even Isaac now is close to being 13 years old. Now you want to take him? To a mountain they went. All of that being said, in chapter 12, God gave a promise. In chapter 20, he gave an oath. Now why is that important? Because the writer of Hebrews says, because of those two things, God cannot lie. A promise and an oath. I think if maybe, if we could pass out a piece of paper amongst all of you, you, and I would say one thing, write down some promises of God's word to you. I would dare say the number one top is going to be, he'll never leave us and never forsake us. Well, that's also quoted in Hebrews chapter 13. But maybe you might add some other promises that he will provide. He will keep. He will satisfy. Those are all promises of the word of God. But when you get to the oath, that, dear people, is something that I feel too often we miss. The oath is this, that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And he who has the son has life. Too often we forget that. We look at world situations, we look at time, circumstances, and we become discouraged, doubt. We're like the disciples in a boat crossing the sea, and Jesus is asleep, and they come and say, Don't you care that we die? Or we're like Peter, who says, let me come out to you, walk on the water. Jesus says, come on. He probably said a little bit more distinctly than that, but he said, come. And Peter began to walk, and as he had kept his eyes on Jesus, he was okay. But he began to take inventory of the circumstances, and he began to sink. Doubt puts a black eye on our faith. It causes us to forget the oath of God. And so when the writer of Hebrews highlights the life of Abraham as an example of what it is to persevere even through the toughest of times, it was used to encourage the readers. But he didn't stop there. Now he introduces in the later parts, if you would come down, if you will, down to verse 19. 
We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. We're not very familiar with this term forerunner. It literally means someone who has gone before and has accomplished a task. Later on, the writer of Hebrews will highlight that task that Jesus accomplished. But as a forerunner, Jesus is already there. There's two things that come with that. First of all, if Jesus is there, guess who else is going to be there? You, who have trusted Christ. He's, that's an oath. That's his promise. And he cannot lie. But the second thing that's there too is an anchor. Did you catch it? It's an anchor. It's not the kind of anchor that we place in ground. It's not the kind of an anchor that goes off of a ship and catches something at the bottom of the sea to hold the ship there. No. It's an anchor that goes to a place that only God resides. Behind the veil, the holy of holies. It's where Jesus went and it's where he offered his life as a sacrifice. Oh, he died on the cross. But at the same time, there are people, I can't fully understand it. But at the same time, he's offering his life literally on the ark of the covenant before God, the dwelling place of God. It's where he spilt his blood as a perfect sacrifice. I'm getting kind of excited the next two weeks. We're going to take a break from Hebrews. Is that okay for you all? And we're going to focus on the triumphant entry. And then we got Good Friday. And then we got Easter Sunday morning. Lord have mercy. I don't know if I'm going to be able to be held down. Because that's where our anchor is. In the very presence of God. And if God didn't fail Abraham, I guarantee you, he won't fail you. No matter what. Oh, doubt and fear, I know that. I understand that. We've all wrestled with that. But yet in the end, dear people, we have Jesus who this forerunner, by the way, took hold of the end of that anchor and took it with him and placed it in the very presence of God so that we know and understand that God is faithful. He will not change his mind. He will not do anything contrary to his character. He is holy. He is Lord. He is King. He is the Sovereign One. And nothing can change that. And one day, He's coming.
He'll break through the clouds of time. Seated on a white stallion. And on him are two different names. You read it in Revelation 19. There's a name that only he knows. And then there's the name of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's coming. Oh, Lord, have mercy. You need to join us on Wednesday nights for that Bible study. We'll be in Revelation 14 this Sunday, or this Wednesday night. Come. Anyway. But there's another individual. This one called Melchizedek. Who in the world is Melchizedek? Chapter 7, chapter 8 begins to describe and highlight who he is. Because it's so important because Jesus is, comes from the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this one? Why? Well, when we get to the book of Genesis, we'll find out that Abraham paid him an offering. He's known as the king of Salem. He's known as the priest of peace. That's who he is. I know that means nothing to you right now. And maybe when we get to chapter 7, when we're finished, it may not mean anything to you then. But we trust that you understand. And what is amazing about that is the priesthood of Melchizedek was before the priesthood of Levi. Why wasn't Jesus after the order of the Levitical priesthood? Because the Levitical priesthood had to continually go time, time, and time again. They even had to offer for their own sin. And Jesus has no sin. He's from the order of Melchizedek. Oh, we'll get there. I believe, I trust. It'll be an enlightenment to you. But how? If this passage has to deal with overcoming doubt, overcoming fear, how is it that we do that? What do we do? In the closing moments, let me give you three things. Three things to remember. Number one, when doubt says only a fool would believe these things, remember, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. If or when doubt tells you God has abandoned me. Remember the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. Thirdly, even though the circumstances around you may continue to pummel you with painful blows, you can have a quiet confidence that God has a purpose, that he's in control, 
and that your soul is anchored firmly in the heavenly realm. You can even begin to realize that even though you're seated here, you're already there in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet for the dead in Christ to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. To the end. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. That's the plea. Let's pray. God of glory, Lord of all that there is, in times of despair, we need to know and understand that there are two things that you promise. You promise of your plan. It's not going to stop there's nothing man can do to halt it. It will be fulfilled. And all the promises of your word will become evident one day. And then there's the oath. The oath of knowing that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That he who has the Son has life. That whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is an oath of God sealed by the blood of your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, O oh God, that your blessing be upon these here this morning. In moments of doubt, may they trust. In moments when circumstances seem to be their darkest, let us focus upon the fact that our anchor holds, surely, in the presence of our Savior, who one day is coming. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.